other peers would really kind of give these backhanded racist comments but no one would ever pull them up on it and it was okay and I have these vivid memories and I write about them in my thesis going why did this happen why was it okay and why didn't I say anything This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. Welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations with me, your host, Andy Dixon. You've all blown me away with your support in the last wee while, and particularly uh, in listening to and sharing Craig Watson's story in the last episode. I've received some messages of late which have been really encouraging, so thank you for that. This podcast only exists because people like you are listening to it, and it only grows because of all you amazing people who tell your friends and family about it or post it on your socials. So thank you from the bottom of my heart, and please keep passing on the love, and let's keep looking for ways to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. One recurring theme on this podcast is addressing issues of race and culture, and talking to people who can help us navigate the journey of racial reconciliation. We've focused primarily on the Aotearoa New Zealand context, but for those of you overseas, I'm sure there are elements that relate to wherever it is that you are. We've had kōrero, or conversations, with Te Kārari Whitea Scarborough, Kat Poi, Andrew Judd, Naomi Nicholas and Matt Renata, just to name a few, who all looked at the topic from different perspectives and had different things for us to think about as they shared their own stories with us. Today we continue that journey with Carrie Thomas. Carrie is a teacher who has an interest in helping change the education system to reflect our bicultural nature as a country. She has recently finished a master's thesis looking at what it means to be a Pākehā engaging with Te Ao Māori or the world of Māori and what are the barriers that get in the way of that. She particularly looked at past moments in her own life where she felt a resistance to engage and explored why that was. We discuss Carrie's passion for kids, for teaching and for change. We talk about the failings of the education system in providing for all kids and what are some of the things that are stopping us from moving ahead well. We talk about the term Pākehā and the misconceptions around it and we hear her thoughts about why it can be so confronting for Pākehā to engage with things Māori or even confront racism. Also, discussing where Kerry sees hope that things could actually change. This is episode 48 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Kerry Thomas. Kia ora, Kerry. Welcome to the podcast. Kia ora. Nice to be here. So, Carrie, no here queer. Who are you? Where are you from? Uh, well, um, ko Carrie Taku Inua, uh, no Airangi ni Fiti o Pititina, i Fano mai aho kiro turua, i Tipu Aki aho te Papakura, ko te Hingo Tuku Piringa, no Ona Kira Tea o, te Pakia aho, uh, ko Thomas Tuku Fano. Um, so, uh, my name is Carrie, and um, I was born in the Bay of Plenty in Rotorua, but grew up in Papakura. Um, and I now reside in a beautiful place in Tamaki Makoto, um, on a Kiritea, Hobsonville Point. Um, and I am proudly, um, proudly Pākehā. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm a teacher by trade, so I've been in education for nearly 20 years and have worn many different hats in that 
space, training as a teacher, a teacher, mentor, leader. Um, yeah, I've got four children, twin boys and two stepsons who are awesome. And um, yeah, we are a blended family. Awesome. And congratulations on recently getting married. Ah, oh, thank you. Yes, it's actually one year tomorrow. Wow. Exciting. Yeah, Yeah, really exciting. Exciting we actually got to get married considering it's been pretty much a year of lockdowns. Yeah, true. (laughs) Yeah, because you're you're in Tamaki Makoda up in Auckland, um, which has had way more lockdowns than the rest of us. Yes. How hard has that been from a personal point of view? Um, I think that um, lockdown fatigue is definitely a real thing and um, yeah, I think it definitely has challenged a lot of us with our own mental health and well-being. Um, but, um, but yeah, with the support of your whanau and stuff, you know, being able to get through it's been, been okay. But definitely a bit of a challenge for me, being newly married and writing a thesis in lockdown conditions was, you know, <laughs> a bit of a yeah, challenge. Yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. So we actually met over 20 years ago now. <laughs> it's... I don't, want it, I don't want it to be that long ago. Over 20 years ago now. Yeah. Um, when I went to performing arts school in 1999, oh, uh, you, you were a year ahead of me at the performing oh, arts school. And, uh, and your kind of main focus there was dance and drama. Yep. Is that something that you have kept going? Yeah, definitely. Always dramatic. No. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Look, in many different ways, but um, probably focus more on my dance from an education perspective and teaching dance for a number of years. Um, yeah, probably from that side of things, more of a teaching perspective. But I think when you're an artist and, and you're probably similar, you can't help but think and, you know, you can't help but think through the lens of dance or, or something when you're processing life or doing life. It's just kind of a part of you no matter what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. You do any lockdown dances ah fuck. <laughs> i can't say it did anything i didn't i didn't join i didn't join the flash mob tragically tragically i've got four boys so they 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 were like what are you doing <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah i know you've been involved in um obviously teaching like you say for a long time now as well and we ended up at the same church as well after we'd been at performing arts school together um, and you went on there to actually run some some dance stuff in that church. Yeah. You were running stuff connected to your school. You yeah. know, how how was all of that fitting together for you? Yeah, that was really cool. I think from, you know, a community perspective, it was really nice to have built good relationships within the school I was teaching in at the time and through the church and local community. So, um, yeah, had the opportunity to run a dance school and kind of connected those worlds together, which was really cool. Um, and that was, yeah, for, for a couple of years. Um, yeah, but yeah, really cool to, to build those connections and create kind of like a creative space for our young people to, to explore their identity and their voice in the language of dance. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, you are a teacher. What is it that you most love about? your role as a teacher? Well, I have been teaching for about, gosh, close to 20 years. (laughs) Um, And I think no matter who I'm teaching, whether it was, I started out teaching six-year-olds and then gradually shifted to intermediate kiddies and did youth mentoring and 
lots of different things with different age groups. But I think fundamentally what I love about teaching is relationships. So teaching to me is all about relationships. And I find it such a privilege to build relationships with the young people I teach in their whānau and collectively um, building relationships to, to see our kids thrive and succeed, however that is interpreted um, in their journey in, in education. Yeah, that totally fits the picture I have of you. Um, you know, from when, when I saw you, you know, you started the, the intermediate kind of age youth group that was going at the church back in the day. And again, you, you seem to have this care for these kids and more than just, hey, I want to teach you some information, but actually mm-hmm. I want to see you thrive at life. You know, I want to see you feeling belonging and feeling welcome and feeling joy, uh, which is actually, I think that's brilliant because I've had explained to me that teachers are people who used to like kids. Um, <laughs> but you <used> to. <laughs> That's what, what one that's what one teacher once told me. But um but you're you're not that sort of person. Like to me you are a teacher who actually loves the kids and you you cares you cares about them. You care about <laughs> them. Um and and I you know, you could see that as an observer looking in. So um yeah, interesting to hear that that's kind of the thing that, that drives you as well and that, that you find most rewarding. Oh, thanks, what is it about the teaching space that is most challenging? Um, I think the most challenging about mainstream education, and it's still going through, I mean, the years it's been going through different um, changes, but it's how do we best cater for a variety of different children and their whānau in front of you. And I don't think that the mainstream model of education honours or fits everybody well particularly in the space that I stand now um, and that I've spent a lot of critical thought and reflection upon is the bicultural landscape. And the great thing is, is that the sector, education sector, is asking more questions about why and how we can approach this and do this better. But from a teaching perspective, um, that's something that I see we still really struggle with as a, as a whole across, across the across the board, whether it's teaching, leadership, um, cultural understandings and how we do that well. So I don't think that it fits, that mainstream model fits everyone well. And on a personal note, my father, um, he he is Fijian Irish and um, he passed away about 10 years ago now, but I saw the education system fail him hugely as a young man. Um, yeah, and just the consequences of that. Obviously, I saw sorry when I was older, not when you know as a child. But um, yeah, and I think probably that that propels me to want to do better in my teaching space for everyone that comes through the doors. Like you said, children knowing their their tūrunga why why their place of connection and belonging. And I think that um, that's something that our education system could and should do better at. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think of my schooling years and I'm the personality type that our school system is set up for. So I really enjoyed education. I learned a lot. I did well, but not necessarily because I was more intelligent than others, but because actually 
my personality fitted with the style of education that we had. And so yeah. it never occurred to me that others didn't fit that. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a board chair of a primary school now. And, you know, so I see behind the system, you know, and you see the kids that are, um, I guess, previously I would have just labeled them trouble kids. You mm. know, these are the kids that are problematic. Whereas now I'm looking at them and going, actually, these are the kids who have had the hardest life in a lot of ways. These are the kids who aren't uh, being looked after well enough. You know, these are the kids who, uh, and, and that's not necessarily even putting that on their family. That's, you know, the education system or mm-hmm. um, just society in general, it doesn't cater to supporting the different situations that people of different cultures, different socioeconomic groups, you know, everything. It just, it's a big melting pot that turns into a system that works really well for some and not at all for others. Yeah, it's, it's a deficit model. Like you say, it's it, it's good that people are still looking at how can we change this? But, um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely is something we need to keep asking how can we change this? Because like you say, it's not something that actually is working for everyone. No, it's, you know, know, it is, like, in your experience, it's set up a certain people group to succeed well. And that was our, you know, that is, that's from our, you know, from colonisation. And Mill calls it a whitewashed society, which means that everything has been set up for the dominant culture, um, you know, for Pākehā, New Zealand Europeans to succeed in and do well in, and it's built on those foundational things of Western knowledge and Western science. This is what you'll do to succeed. This is how you'll do it. Um, off you go. <laughs> and then for everyone else who sits outside of that, who has maybe um, an Indigenous worldview, um, for our treaty partner, a Te Māori worldview, it doesn't fit into that. And so, therefore, you're not going to succeed in this. And that's that's the that's the tragedy, um, because it is choosing to um, disadvantage certain people groups while advantaging others. Um, you know, I think back to when my mum was uh, my mum grew up in the far north in Kaikoki, and an adopted Fano, and she has vivid memories of some of her best friends getting strapped or taken out of the class um, because they spoke Te Reo Māori. Um, they had to speak English or they, they had to have a European name. And um, although we don't see that now, which is great and things are changing, the same could be said, well, why, why are we getting our Korean students or our Chinese students to change their names to these European names? So things have changed and are changing, but there's still so much we can do too. Yeah. Yeah, so this bicultural area is something that you have not, you don't just have strong opinions about, but you've actually done a whole lot of research about. You've written a thesis mm-hmm. in this area. Um, what was it that got you interested in exploring this as a as a research topic? Well, I think for me, it's my life story, um, and so for me, growing up, I grew up in um, Papakura um, with my family. And um, I have always been quite socially justice-driven and also very curious. Um, So growing up, um, I noticed that my dad, the way my dad was treated in different situations was really different to the way my mum was treated in situations. 
Um, and in reflection, it has been because my father essentially had brown skin and my mum had white skin. And so I have vivid memories sitting in the back of our Cortina and often my dad would get pulled over by the police. Um, and, you know, they'd do the checks, look in and see my mum and me and be like, oh, yeah, okay, you're all good, you can carry on. <laughs> um, compared to my mum, you know, who would hardly ever get pulled over, even driving the same kind of broken down car. <laughs> um, and I, I saw lots of this kind of happen in my childhood. And as a child, you just think that's normal, that's the way the world is. But as you get older, as I got older, I got a lot more curious to go, why does that happen? Um, you know, and noticing a lot of my peers, similar things would happen to them. Or on the flip side, other peers who, um, in particular, I trained with to become a teacher, would really kind of give these backhanded kind of racist comments, but no one would ever pull them up on it. And it was... It was okay. And I just remember going, well, vividly, I have these vivid memories and I write about them in my thesis, going, why did this happen? Why was it okay? And why didn't I say anything? Um, yeah, well. So, yeah, I hugely curious, I think, led me to that. And then a few years ago in my um, postgrad, I had an amazing lecturer. Alison Jones, who actually was my supervisor for my thesis, and she was this incredible academic um, woman, Pākehā woman, but just really wanting to examine and look at cross-cultural relationships, and she has got an incredible story herself, and she's done so much work in that space. And I just remember sitting in her class and being really inspired about the questions she was asking about the education system. Um, about the behaviours that we as Pākehā have, um, but also why do we shy away from the term Pākehā? You know, kind of asking those questions, who are you living on this land in relationship with Tangata Whenua? Um, who do you call yourself? And so I was really inspired by her research and her work, particularly around Pākehā identity, um, that I did, I yeah I started my thesis journey and I asked the question a Pākehā dance with Te Ao Māori and really for me that was looking at my own relationship and understanding of Te Ao Māori is it something that I'm engaged with is it something that I partner with is it something um, I dance with from you know that kind of metaphor and so that was unpacking my my own experience. So I focused on three pivotal memories um, in, from my time in the education system. And I looked at the invisible barriers that prevent me from engaging with te ao Māori. And the barriers were Pākehā identity, ignorance and fragility. And so it was unpacking those concepts trying to dig deep and understand what are these invisible barriers and, and how have they prevented me, a Pākehā, to, to build relationships, to connect, to engage, to understand parts of Te Ao Māori. Pākehā can't understand all parts of Te Ao Māori because some of that is so sacred and only for tangata whenua. But 
um, what has prevented me? And that has been a transformational journey for me because it has made me pause and reflect on my childhood, on my young adult years, to where I'm at now in the education system and go, wow, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, just have lots of new knowledge and understanding and I think has made me, um, yeah, as I said earlier, become proudly Pākehā from something that I used to shy away from. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed you've got an Instagram page um, that I've been following mm -hmm. that you called Becoming Pākehā, which for a lot of us would go, aren't you already Pākehā? Like, what, what does that term, <laughs> Becoming Pākehā, mean to you? Well, I think actually that term has been has been misunderstood for generations because we have grown up in Anne Milne's words in a whitewashed community. Um, a part of that is that, um, you know, it is that barrier of being incredibly ignorant and to understanding or having the education and knowledge to understand what that term Pākehā means. Um, but it's also a term that has been, um, yeah, has, has for generations been misunderstood. And I remember talking about it in one of my classes when I was doing my postgraduate and people still had the belief that Pākehā meant white pig or white flea or um, something quite derogatory. Right. To the point where um, a woman in my class said that she could vividly actually remember it being written down in some kind of text in her mainstream school. And so the term Pākehā, um, I think actually needs to be, um, it needs to be talked about and discussed because there are these false beliefs about actually what it means. Um, but I think it's, the, it's a, pivotal, a pivotal starting point um, for us living here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We have to ask, who are we? in relationship with Tangata Whenua? Who, who are we in relationship to the land that we live on, that we work on, that we worship on, that we bury our loved ones in? What is our relationship mm. to this? Um, and so and for, I, you the term, for, for you, the term Pākehā has that relational connotation? It's not just about, hey, these are the people with this colour skin? No, no, because I think it's deeper and more complex than race. So if you're looking at, um, you know, race studies, it's, it's, it, it focuses more on colour, I suppose. Mm. Um, but I think as a, as a being, as a people, as a culture, so to speak, it is something so deep and so complex and, and actually incredibly beautiful. Um, I love what um, Annie McKayde famously said, um, and it, actually this is in Alison Jones's book, um, A Pākehā Memoir, and it says, there is nowhere else in the world that, that one can be Pākehā, whether the term remains forever linked to the shameful role of the oppressor or whether it can become a positive source of identity and pride. Mm. It is up to Pākehā themselves. All that is required from them is a leap of faith. And so it is definitely a journey. Um, it's not, I mean, yes, we can use it as a term, but 
but I think it it is a lot deeper than that. It's about relationship. It's about connection. It's about ultimately Waitangi. It's about all of those things because I think if we can understand who we are as Pākehā, that will change the way that you engage and understand what it means to live in a bicultural nation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point too, that that like you go anywhere else in the world, Pākehā is not a thing. It's yeah. only a thing here because of the connection to Māori. That's right. And actually, when we first arrived to Aotearoa, New Zealand, many years ago, um, you know, the term Pākehā only became in existence because of relationship with Māori. So Māori, um, Māori, which means ordinary, um, mm. used the term Pākehā to describe or say, you are different from us. You know, so we only we kind of the term Māori and Pākehā brought each other into relationship as well. Like those terms brought each other into existence, which I think is really cool and really interesting as well. Yeah, I, I really I appreciate that real relational perspective on it because, like you say, there is so much rubbish out there of you know what it means or what it doesn't mean or you know people that however they'd like to describe themselves and and even in the past you know I've you know, in the past I'd preferred the term New Zealand European and now I'm like, <laughs> what does it even mean? Pick? Yeah, exactly. And now I'm like, no, I'm... but it's interesting though, because as, as you pointed out, it's a relational thing and, and it's only been as I've um, engaged more with Te Ao Māori, with the world of Māori, that I've become really comfortable with that term Pākehā because I've, I've felt the comfort of the relationship that that sits within. Um, and I think, like you say, ignorance is just a huge part of of where the barriers are. Mm. the the word The other word that you brought up, or one of the other words you brought up, was fragility. Mm. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about what that means? Because I've, again, it's a word that gets tossed around a little bit, and then a lot of people that are that are using it get labelled as woke by other people, and then you know. <laughs> we're all just in different camps and nobody listens to each other so so from your perspective what is this thing of fragility yeah I really like the term fragility and I was introduced to it um through my research uh through um an author and researcher Robin D'Angelo um and so she wrote a book called white fragility why is it so hard for white people to talk about racism and the big issues that tackle fragility or are associated to fragility are anxiety and fear. And that comes down to unpacking questions around privilege mm. and um, ignorance, I think, too. So although in my research I look at ignorance as a different barrier to fragility, it's very closely linked from the, from the perspective of um, when you do grow up in a society that has been created for you, the dominant culture to succeed to succeed in, to have everything to to live a full life, so to speak, um, the ignorance that you you have ignorance to how others live, and and actually um, there's other research around that in regards to how that develops in your brain um, and how linked ignorance and fragility are and how we function and how we think when you live in a society that 
that serves you. Um, but it is fragility is that knowing that that knowing that you are privileged, and if you're going to have cross-cultural relationships and enter into that, it's about facing your own privilege, um, which many people choose not to. And so often a reaction to facing our privilege or facing racism um, is we might um, completely ignore, separate ourselves, um, or we might um, somehow turn it around and manipulate it saying that we are the victims in, in facing racism. Um, there's a great chapter in her book about white women's tears. So her research was done in the United States of America, but there's lots of um, similarities, which I see here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, but it's, it's, it's fragility, it's those things of knowing that we are privileged, but we are fearful to face that. We're fearful to let it go. Um, and so we act out in these quite vulgar ways, really, um, pushing it on other people and not facing it ourselves, which racism is not a Maori problem. It's actually a Pākehā one, a white European <laughs> problem. We have to face it. And lots of people run from it. Or their fragility might sound like those backhanded comments at the dinner table, comments on being late or whatever, oh, Māori time or whatever, you know, and yeah, yeah, fragility is um, is prevalent, I think, in our society. It's really interesting, you, you talked about the, like, the anxiety or the fear and stuff, and, you know, I guess I've noticed it in my own life that when you encounter those kind of situations that are different or where you have to face some of that stuff, it's actually really uncomfortable mm. and and I don't think that Western culture in particular sets us up to do uncomfortable well. Um, you know, that we we like things to work in precision, you know, the progress mindset, the the, the enlightenment factory, you know, um, we like things to be running well and, you know, conflict's not a great thing that a lot of us like, but also just this idea of, actually sometimes being uncomfortable is actually the best thing for you you know is is not necessarily something that we celebrate as as a culture um and yeah i, I remember being on a marae actually and someone saying as maori we have to take a step towards pakeha all the time you know that's mm -hmm. uh, we have to because like we have to speak english we have to do all these things that involve us taking a step and we're not actually asking you to become Māori. What we're asking is that you would just take a step towards us too. Yeah. And and I, I thought about it and went, yeah, like that's something they have to do, but something I can choose not to do if I want to. Mm. And um, and so that, that was one of the catalysts for me to go, no, actually this is something that I'm going to keep stepping into. And, mm. and um, which is, yeah, has been pretty life-changing for me as well Absolutely. but yeah I've, I've totally noticed that fragility thing even in my own experience of that going oh do do I want to have to face it this time you know yeah. and going it, it could be easy to not stand up against that this time because I just can't be bothered or yeah and then and then hearing my Maori friends going oh man I'm just so tired from standing against this you know um, yeah. and going, actually they don't have a choice so 
that that is privilege you know that I have a choice yeah and that's and that's a great example you know I think it's you know as Makari said it's it's taking that leap of faith but to do that you've got to become incredibly vulnerable you've got to go I am going to make mistakes (laughs) but I'm going to keep stepping forward I'm going to keep taking that that leap because it's incredibly important in our bicultural landscape. We are a bicultural nation. Mm. And, you know, it, I think, you know, I believe every Pākehā should be taking that leap of faith or positioning themselves like you in vulnerable spaces. Um, and they're privileged spaces to be in any way. I mean, being invited onto a marae or, you know, what a, what a beautiful, precious experience. Um, yeah, I mean, my um, my example of that fragility, which I saw in full flight at Teachers College <laughs> many years ago, but um, a peer of mine, um, we it was compulsory to take a Māori paper about Māori education, and he felt it was absolutely fine and okay to blurt out how offended he was at taking this paper and how upset and angry he was, and he would never use this Māori stuff in his teaching career. And, you know, I just remember standing there quite dumbfounded and frozen and not knowing what to say because I was fearful of, I guess, of saying the wrong thing to him, but also because I'm not tangata whenua, I'm not Māori, what do I say in this space? And for me... Yes, I was feeling anxious, but for him, what I found in my research and unpacking that situation was actually he he was incredibly fearful and anxious. He displayed fragility because he was so used to going to classes, knowing everything, being the top student, knowing what to do to get an A, that for him to step into a space that he knew nothing about that he potentially would have to face his privilege and position of who he was in society, terrified him. And so his fragility came out in this very offensive, verbally racist way. And so, um, you know, it is, fragility comes out and manifests in many different ways. It's interesting, actually, I think of how it has played out in the church at times too, where, the fragility or the you know the the not coping when something is different mm. has actually come out in things being declared as wrong or you know evil or and actually yeah. when you look at it it's just different you know it's it's not the way that you have grown up you know and mm. and um so yeah having that even even in that spiritual space going hey just cuz something feels really off to you doesn't make it wrong maybe you just don't understand enough yet. You know, maybe you need to lean into that to, to investigate that and go, why is this feeling like this to me? And it might be that you go, actually, this is really whack theology and that's why it feels (laughs) off. Or it might be actually, this is because this is different and because, Mm -hmm. because this is not the way that I do things. And so, you know, what can I learn from that other space? And um, I think that's been one of the biggest things for me is, is that as I've learnt more of the Māori world, I actually feel like I've learnt more about myself. You know mm. that that I've um, 
I've learned where some of those things are that I feel uncomfortable around and and why do I do that? And I've also seen beauty in the way that that people of a different culture do things. You know, mm. that actually that's not how my culture does it. And wow, that's a real challenge to my culture because actually, you know, maybe I'm really focused on achievement and they're really focused on relationship. So a whole bunch of things like that is, has been huge for me. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, I mean, what a beautiful reflection of who God is when we get to be around and be challenged by difference, you know? I think yeah. that's, um, yeah, I think that's God in a lot of ways. He isn't, God isn't, um, can't be controlled or, you know, oh, it's like this and it looks like this and it's got to be this and it's got to be done this way. No. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> There's many different ways, many different ways to look at things. And Only a few episodes ago, I was talking to Matt Renata and he was talking about, you know, have, um, being challenged about believing in the colonised God and, yeah. you know, how he's, you know, as a Māori who was, who became a Christian in a, a white space, you know, he actually was really appreciative of that because that introduced him to his faith but now he's exploring actually what does it look like when God isn't this colonized box, you know, that I've been handed. What does it look like when, you know, my heritage and culture comes in and, and talking to him about that was really beautiful because um, again, it was a challenge to go actually, you know, the white Western idea of God that I've grown up with mm. isn't the full picture, you know, mm. um, that it's a, it's a glimpse. It's a, it's one perspective, you know, and, and that's actually, yeah, that's, again, it could be confronting in a negative way. You could react negatively to that, or mm. you can go, oh, well, what can I do with that? You know, where does that leave me? You know, what what does that teach me? You know, all of those kind of things just buzz through my head now. Uh, when in the past I would have just gone, bro, that's weird, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's having that open mind and open heart and the beauty and diversity of people and, and and the gift that is, you know, the gift that is to us rather than, um, yeah, just shutting it down and walking away. I think it's a real gift, yeah. So for you, I mean, this was very focused around the education setting. What is it that you learnt through this that you think could benefit the education system or just even the environments that um, that you're in as an educator? the education system for so long, we used to call them target kids, <laughs> Māori, Polynesian children, they're our target children. What a terrible thing to label children, number one. But what, it's such an appalling model of best practice, oh, sorry, um, you know, that we constantly point at others and go, oh, that's a problem, that's a problem. But actually, we've got to point at ourselves and um, Georgina Tuare Stewart, incredible um, Māori academic, she wrote about um, a white typology in education and she talks about white saviors, white vampires, um, white allies and, and all these different kind of characters in education, you know, around that. Sometimes we just want to, we want to tick the Māori box so we suck everything out. Oh, we better put on a, a little cultural performance, tick, <laughs> you know, and just kind of using Māori for the little tick cultural boxes without understanding and building relationship and you know actually soothing our kids 
So yeah, I think that change starts with us, and so to want to bring about change or bring different perspectives and understanding, you have to go through that yourself. And one thing um, that's been in the media at the moment is Aotearoa New Zealand History's curriculum. Now, I've just started to look at that document and there's different bits and pieces coming out. But my biggest concern about that is to teach children or our future generations the history or story of Aotearoa New Zealand. You as a teacher or a leader in, a, in an education space have to understand and experience it yourself first. And so that's probably where my heart and my head are at through what I have gone through to look at these invisible barriers and not just, you know, skim along the surface. Oh, yes, Pākehā identity, ignorance and fragility. Actually, to dive deep into it and understand it. What does it look like in my life? What does it look like in my space, in my classroom, in my education setting? What does, what does, what does it look like? And then when I identify it within myself and within my space, I then have the understanding to change, you know, and, and change that comes not only with me personally, but with me, for those people beside me, around me. Um, I think it's got to be a, it's got to be a, you know, I know it's a buzzword, but a collaborative, collective effort um, for that, for that to take place. And so I think it really starts with teachers and leaders in those spaces first. Once we have that understanding and that new knowledge and, you know, there's different buzzwords for what we call it in education, cultural um, capabilities, cultural understandings, cross-cultural understandings. If you have that from an authentic, genuine perspective, then I think we can see change in our classrooms and how we approach our children and their whānau and valuing and respecting and understanding whakapapa and what that means. Um, then I think we can start to see some change with that. Yeah, it's it's a big question because it is it's complicated, it's complex, and you know we were talking about fragility. People don't want to have conversations about colonisation. Going through my study, the amount of eye rolls and people going oh <laughs> with what I was studying, and and almost I mean I I cried so much last year just reading the research and. And reflecting on myself as a, you know, being a part of the system and 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 trying to understand the impacts of colonisation, it's really confronting. And lots of people don't want to have those conversations. So it's it. How do we have those conversations? How do we approach that where people can position themselves to be vulnerable, to critically self-reflect, and be okay with that? I think so often, you know, there are lots of teachers out there who are passionately advocating for this, and I love that. But there are also teachers who are like, I don't want to know about it. I don't, that's in the past. I mean, you know, it's it's such a tired school, you know, such a tired way of thinking, oh, that's in the past, that wasn't me, that wasn't my ancestors, Ugh. And the danger with that is if we keep saying that things won't change, we're not going to progress, we're not going to actually start to look at ways how we can be a bicultural nation within the mainstream education. And, and that's what I'm passionately advocating for and prompting questions and inquiring into. 
you know, to help be a part of the change or support change because because actually it's my responsibility now because I have been, you know, I am forever chained through what I've walked through and journeyed through and critically reflected upon. I can't help but see that in whatever school or space I end up in. It would be um, it would be devaluing who I am and, and my story and my space. So, yeah. Yeah. Where do you find hope in all of this? One thing I love about hope is that it is a small word, but it's got such a massive meaning, doesn't it? It, it can, you know, where do I see hope in this? I see hope when <laughs> recently um, I, I put out there to some beautiful colleagues to do a, a Te Reo Māori course through the Ministry of Education. It's an incredible course, actually, um, Te Ahu o Te Reo Māori. And um, the hope is when people go, me, 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 they jump on board and they want to do it. There's the hope. Or it's when I go, hey, why don't we look at ways that we can build relationship with mana whenua and people jump on board and they want to be a part of it. You know, it's other people wanting to be a part of it. And I think it's other people leading in different spaces and areas with it too. The, the hope is when you have kids in your classroom who can pronounce Te Reo Māori words well, you know, or who are correcting others or who are correcting their teachers. Um, the hope is when you look at Te Waitangi within your classroom and you're having critical conversations with nine and 10 year olds. Um, that's the hope because the hope is our children. The hope is found in our children. The hope is found in the generations who are gonna carry this on um, yeah, and I'm really excited. I'm really excited to see the waka of change happening in our mainstream education space. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for giving time to talk to us today. And um, I mean, thank you for your, your passion and your heart for the young people that you serve. Thank you for your exploration of this topic. And, and I really appreciate that uh, you're not another white person going, how can Maori kids do better? You know, it's not, <laughs> that hasn't been your focus. It's been, how can we do better as Pākehā? How can, how can the, how can the system do better? You know, how can we, how can this work for everybody? Um, and I think that's such a, you know, there's been so many cases of white saviorism um, mm, where right. people have gone, hey, we, we've noticed these kids not doing as well. How can they do better? Mm. And, and not going, actually, how can we do better? And so I love that heart that you've come with of going, actually, when it all boils down to it, this is about me. You know, this is about what I need to learn so that I can do better. And then hopefully that can replicate outwards. Um, yeah, so, yeah, thank, thank you for, for what you're doing to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Oh, thank you, Andy. Thank you for having me on here. Hello. Hello. Carrie's passion for this is so inspiring. Her willingness to be vulnerable and explore her own failings and fragility is a challenge to us all. So Carrie, thank you for sharing yourself with us. Here is a blessing for you. Carrie, as you explore and reflect on yourself and your identity, may you continue to discover who you are in all its beauty. 
May you continue to find the treasure of becoming Pākehā and what that allows you to bring to the world. May your marriage flourish and your children be a source of joy, your family helping to ground you as you continue to do good in the world through your teaching, your leadership and education spaces, and by just being you wherever you are. May the memory of your father always inspire you and give you energy to keep pushing for change, that others like your dad would not be failed by the education system in the ways that he was. May the kids in your classrooms continue to bring you hope, continue to give you courage and inspire you on in your journey. May you find regular opportunities to encourage and challenge colleagues towards a better way, helping them to find the courage to examine themselves in the way that you are doing for yourself. When you look back on this time in your life, may you be encouraged by all that has happened because you had the courage to begin this journey and to stand for something outside of the dominant culture's status quo. And lastly, may you know you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time when I talk to Age Palmer of the Eddington Coffee Co-op. We hear about how the coffee co-op came about, what makes them different to other cafes in Christchurch, the kaupapa or heart of why they do things the way that they do, and we hear about the relationships they have with organisations they align with and the difference that that makes in the world. Until then, me inoi tātou. E tō mātou matua i te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia tau mai tō rangatiratanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Humai kia mātou ai nei He taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Mūro mātou hara Me mātou hoki e muru nei I o te hunga E hara ana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kawea Kia whakawaia Engari whakorangia mātou I te kino Mūro mātou hara